I'm Tanzina Vega, host of The Takeaway, and you're listening to Politics Brief from WNYC, bringing you the very best coverage of the 2018 elections. You'll hear segments from my show, as well as The Brian Lehrer Show, On the Media, and The New Yorker Radio Hour, plus the work of the award-winning WNYC Newsroom, which is following all the local New York and New Jersey races. Welcome to Politics Brief from WNYC. Brian Lehrer on WNYC, and now we continue our fall election series, 30 Issues in 30 Days. And today we begin 10 days in a row in this series of assessing and debating how policy has changed under the Trump administration and the Republican Congress, and for better or worse. There's so much distraction, so much uh, good reason for distraction, frequently with the Russia investigation and things on Trump's character and so forth. But for this series... We are focusing on policy, and for the next 10 days in a row in this series, we will assess and debate how policy has actually changed under the Trump administration and the Republican Congress, and for better or for worse, on 10 different topics. And we begin right now with the issue that many Americans consider the number one policy issue this year, the cost of health care and health insurance. Sound familiar? It's been number one or nearly number one on people's issue list for so long. And later in the segment, we'll bring in guests with different points of view. But we want to launch this with your calls, with your stories of how your own health care costs have been affected by policy in the last two years. 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. So listeners, help us report this story, and you can do it in some specific ways um, that I'll mention. How have your own health care costs been affected in the last two years by anything having to do with actions or inactions by the Trump administration and this Congress? 212-433-9692. If you're insured through the Affordable Care Act, what has changed for you? If you're uninsured today, is that, in your opinion, because of anything Trump or Congress has or hasn't done. I'm curious for anyone how your prescription drug costs have changed in the last two years, especially if you're on the same medications and we're able to compare before and after prices. Of course, rising prescription drug prices are a central issue in the health care debate right now, and we're definitely seeing in these various congressional races, Republicans and Democrats, comparing their plans. 212 433 WNYC, if you have a prescription drug price story to tell. And one thing that Trump and Congress um, did repeal and not replace is the Obamacare individual mandate. It was repealed in the tax bill because it was a tax penalty that you had to um, pay for not being insured. Remember that? So you no longer have to buy health insurance under the law. Has anyone decided to go uninsured as a result of that new choice? 212-433-WNYC, 212-433-9692. Remember, Trump campaigned and the Republicans who are in Congress right now campaigned so heavily on repealing and replacing Obamacare. And then there was this big repeal and replace bill uh, that got almost all the way there in Congress, except there were three votes. And it's no secret that Trump and, you know, the Republican Congress, the rest of the Republican Congress were pretty angry at these three senators who voted against it and sunk the bill. Remember how Trump blamed John McCain in McCain's dying months when Trump would go on the campaign trail? We did repeal and replace Obamacare. Unfortunately, one senator decided to put the thumb down late in the morning. And that was not a good thing when he put that thumb down. But we've made up for it, and in many ways, more than made up for it. Well, so he says they made up for it and more than made up for it. Of course, that one senator was John McCain, who basically had to be brought in uh, at two or three in the morning to cast the deciding vote. But there were the other two Republicans uh, who declared their opposition much earlier than McCain, and they were, just as they are in the spotlight right now with Judge Kavanaugh, Susan Collins, and 
Lisa Murkowski. But Obamacare has still been substantially weakened, even without that big repeal and replace bill. And there are things the administration has been able to do by executive action um, or by more limited acts of Congress like we've been enumerating. So has anyone decided to go uninsured as a result of the mandate being lifted? Has, you know, allowing the young healthy population to opt out was also expected to result in a rise in premiums for everyone else because everyone else is more costly to cover than the young invincibles, as they're sometimes called. Has that happened to anyone? And I wonder, anyone who works at a health insurance company who may be listening, if you have experience in your field, maybe as an insurance broker or salesperson, and you want to call in and report on what you've been seeing in the marketplace as a result of that, you can do that at 212-433-WNYC. Some of the other things, Trump also suspended the so-called risk adjustment payments to insurance companies with too many elderly or unhealthy enrollees. That was a government subsidy to keep the insurance premiums manageable in the marketplace for customers. And ending that was also expected to push up the price of insurance. Again, can anyone help us report if and how that has happened? Trump also allowed states to begin to impose work requirements on Medicaid recipients. Not every state does it. But anyone on Medicaid listening right now has a new work requirement or even maybe has now declined Medicaid as a result, 212-433-WNYC or any other way that your healthcare costs or access or quality have been affected as you see it by actual actions by the Trump administration and Congress in the last two years since Trump has been in office, 212-433-WNYC. 212-433-9692. Help us report this story as we begin with some of your stories before we bring in some guests on today's topic in our fall election series, 30 Issues in 30 Days. How have Trump and the Republican, uh, Republican Congress affected your health care costs? And we'll take your calls right after this. You're listening to the Politics Brief Podcast. We'll be right back after a quick break. <laughs> Brian Lehrer on WNYC, as we will take some of your calls now on anything that you think the Trump administration or Congress, since Trump got elected, has done that has affected your medical costs or access to health care as they try piecemeal to repeal um, parts of Obamacare and take other actions in the marketplace that, that we'll talk about, some of which we haven't mentioned yet and we'll get into when our, uh, when our guests join us. But James in Plainfield, you're on WNYC. Thank you for calling, James. Hi. Hi. Yeah, I just uh, hit the uh, $8.76 a month rate for my silver plan with Blue Cross Blue Shield in New Jersey. And I'm facing, I'm self-employed, so I'm facing having to drop it because I, I don't even know, I don't even, I'm so afraid to know what the next level will be next year for a similar plan. It's, it's frightening. And it, and it went up so much this year because of Trump dropping the um, federal subsidies, I believe, for the insurance company. So their excuse was to raise it 25% from last year. I mean, it's been, it's been very difficult for me to carry this year at that rate and having to pay a mortgage, et cetera. I just, it's just very frustrating and very scary facing no insurance again. James, thank you for starting us off. You know, I did read one article, and we'll get into this with our guests, that said despite the things that Trump has done that would seem destabilizing to the marketplace, relieving the individual mandate on young, healthy Americans, um, moving people into the so-called short-term plans if they, if they want to do that instead of signing up under the Affordable Care Act. Despite all of that, there may be a stabilization of the rates this year. So we'll find out if that's if that's actually true. Uh, but let's go next to Danielle in Manhattan. You're on WNYC. Hi, Danielle. Hi, Brian. Love your show. Thank you. Um, I think that uh, one of the uh, problems is that there are a lot of platitudes about uh, health insurance because it is really states that put in that deal with our insurance companies. And 
My experience has been being an having an individual policy since the 90s is that the costs obviously ran up. Then in um, with the Affordable Care Act, it has been a challenge to deal with the insurance companies, which continually dropped out. And now in New York State and in New York City in particular, we have no choice of insurance companies. There, there are none to offer um, individual plans, and they're insanely expensive. The networks have narrowed to an obscene degree. Uh, we have no, um, the hospital networks are stuck in, uh, and also uh, the cost is is yeah. obscene. Are you so, talking about individual plans that are not on the Obamacare or Affordable Care Act exchanges? Well, you can go directly to an insurance company. You don't have to right. go to the exchange to do it. We yeah. have two companies in New York that offer individual plans at this point in New York City. Um, they are very, very costly. They don't offer anything. They're very narrowed. You don't know who's going to be in the networks. Well, why w wouldn't you go in your situation to the Affordable Care Act exchange because depending on your income, you might be able to get a subsidy to keep the premiums more affordable. And also there were the mandates of things that needed to be covered so the, you know, the actual benefits wouldn't be so thin. Well, I understand that, Brian, but, you know, there are a lot of people in New York City that are in individual plans that don't read, that don't, uh, uh, Get get a subsidy, right. so we have been shoved into the essentially same private market, and now we have no ch we've we've had very little choice going on, and the only change that I see with the uh, you know the slicing and dicing that uh, Trump has done is that uh, catastrophic plans have been uh, reintroduced, and a lot of people are going on those and just you know they're they're. They cover, you know, they cover right. the worst possible. Exactly, uh, and that is a choice. That's that's one of the things we'll we'll talk about with our guests when they join us. The the so-called catastrophic plans, where you really are only covered if something really catastrophic and expensive happens to you. Uh, the Obamacare plans required much more coverage than that, and there is an argument that the conservatives make that the ca catastrophic plans are a good option for some people. Uh, pay for routine health care expenses out of your pocket, keep your premiums down that way, but if something really bad happens, you're insured. Other people think that's not such a good idea, uh, but thank you for bringing those up and the fact that they came back. We'll talk about that further. Let me go to another caller, Elena in Hillside, New Jersey. You're on WNYC. Hi, Elena. Good morning, Brian. So you're a young family who opted out of health insurance? Um, yes, we're a young family. We have a two-year-old daughter. Uh, we really never go to the doctor unless, you know, it's a checkup or something. And uh, the premiums were very high. We were getting a subsidy, but it still didn't help. And then we realized that even if we pay our premiums every month and still go to the doctor, each person would have to pay a $1,500 deductible every year. There was no way we were going to reach that deductible unless something tragic had happened. So we were just seeing the money leakage, and we decided to opt out and just save $500 a month, God forbid, for something happened. Um, and we're very frustrated. It's, it's you know, impossible to realize we don't have an insurance um, as a young family. If they didn't repeal the individual mandate, would you still be buying insurance for your family? If they didn't repeal, um, I will have to do more research on that. I'm sorry, I just uh, tuned into you about 10 minutes ago. Um, right. Well, what one yeah. of the changes that Trump and Congress made in the tax bill was they took away the mandate under the law to buy health insurance right. or pay a tax penalty. If they if they had not repealed that, do you think you would still be buying insurance rather than uh, risk the tax penalty? I think we would still opt out. You do. I yeah. think that we can, because the tax penalty comes out to less than what would, what we would have to pay out of pocket, even if we didn't have to go to the doctor. So. I understand. Thank thank you very much, uh, and everybody. You know, let's. 
Hope Elena and her two-year-old and the rest of the family, um, nothing happens until they can afford health insurance again. And obviously, we're going to talk about policy options for making it possible for them. Steve in Montclair, you're on WNYC. Hi, Steve. Hi, Brian. Thank you. Yes, uh, as other callers have mentioned, uh, I have have opted out of insurance. One, I can't afford insurance. I, I was excited about the affordable health care, uh, but like millions of other people, you know, they found out, I found out that the premiums and out-of-pocket expenses before the um, insurance would kick in was just simply unaffordable. I'm self-employed. And uh, so my insurance plan has been for many, many years and continues to be, uh, don't get sick, don't need to go to the hospital. That's a good plan. Everybody should enlist in that plan, and then nobody would get sick. Steve, I hope I hope it works out while you're in this gap period. Thank you for calling. Marsha in Queen, and there's two examples, folks, of, of people who, uh, well, at least in Steve's case, case um, because of the lifting of the mandate, he's like, oh, I don't have to do this again. In Elena's case, she would have opted out anyway, she said, and paid the health insurance uh tax penalty. Marsha in Queens, you're on WNYC. Hi, Marsha. Hi. <laughs> my, I just got my sister on the phone and um, to verify some things that I'm going to say. My sister was working for a company in Pennsylvania that downsized. Uh, can I mention the name of the company? Um, uh, I'd say you can skip the name of the company. Okay. And they offered her an insurance um, for when she was um, laid off, and unfortunately, it was too expensive for her. So she doesn't have insurance now, and she's um, on unemployment compensation until she finds another job. And she said, though, that her state in Pennsylvania offers an insurance, and she does plan to go there. Now, my concern for her is that she has a health condition um, thyroid disease, uh-huh. and she needs to have medications, and and she needs to be seen by a doctor on a regular basis. And so I'm hoping that um, the insurance that she gets in that state will, will be beneficial to her while she's unemployed. I'm curious if her employer said anything, um, or her previous insurance company said anything about why premiums were so high whether recent policies affected anything or if this would have been the case without the last election? I did ask her a question about, um, about what was... She, there was, she, couldn't, she couldn't answer the question mm-hmm. um, that, I, that I asked her about her previous or what the insurance was. Um, I can't remember yes. now. Um, exactly, because I'm a little nervous. Right, that's okay. We're all friends here. You don't have to be nervous. <laughs> but, but I, but I get your story, and uh, some of the vagaries uh, were probably vague uh, about whatever she was told by the officials of her employer or the health insurance company about why these things were happening. John in Woodstock, you're on WNYC. Hi, John. Hi. Um, this is slightly off topic because not specifically Trump, but an example of why prescription drug costs are so high. I have a chronic, um, sorry, I have a rare disease and Medicare pays $120,000 a year for one medicine for me. And we'll do that for the rest of my life. In Japan, where it's made, it costs 1200 a year. And <clears throat> that's because when Bush put in coverage under Medicare, uh, the Medicare was not allowed to negotiate with the drug companies on prices. And that's definitely one of the things, uh, John, thanks for throwing that in there, that we're going to talk about because Trump does have a plan that he says is a plan for reducing prescription drug prices. Some of it has been implemented already. uh, And part of what we'll do when we talk to our guests, who are going to come up here in just a minute, um, is to talk about what actually has been done with respect to prescription drug prices and whether it's having any effect. But you're certainly right that at the moment, at least, Medicare cannot negotiate price with drug companies. The Republican philosophy on that to this point is that Medicare is so big with so many people in its customer base that 
it would have too much clout in the marketplace, would be able to determine the price of medications, and that would actually be too disadvantageous for the pharmaceutical companies, um, not just because they wouldn't make the profits they want to make, um, you know, who cares if they're getting rich, but because it would then discourage them from actually producing medications because it's not worth it to them. Uh, I think we're going to hear that argued out a little bit from our guests coming up. So, John, thank you. Thank you to all of you who called in with your health insurance and affordable and unaffordable health care stories. And we'll bring in our two guests uh, in just a minute who will start discussing how what Trump and the Republican Congress have actually done since they were elected with respect to health care costs. And um, you'll make your determination. Do they deserve or not deserve to be reelected, at least on that basis? Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC and its 30 issues in 30 days, our fall election series. Our issue today is the top issue for many Americans, affordable health care. How has the affordability of health care changed for better or worse under the people now in power? Do they deserve to retain power if your vote is based on this? 212-433-WNYC. And now we'll bring in guests with different points of view. With me are Heather Howard, a health policy expert and former associate director of the Domestic Policy Council during the Clinton administration, and Robert Moffitt, senior fellow in the uh, conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation's Center for Health Policy Studies. Heather and Robert, thanks so much for engaging on this. Welcome to WNYC. Uh, It's a pleasure to be with you, Brian. And we've been taking calls from listeners on some of this, so let me start going down the list of things that I think the administration and this Congress have actually done. They failed to repeal and replace Obamacare as a whole, but they did repeal the individual mandate to buy insurance. And we did get some calls in the last few minutes from people who are saying, well, we're not going to get a tax penalty. Um, Maybe even if we did, we wouldn't buy insurance right now. Uh, But some of them, because there's no penalty hanging over their heads. How do each of you think that has affected the number of insured Americans and the cost of insurance for everyone else. Uh, Robert Moffat, since this is a a Republican policy and you're kind of representing that point of view, I'll let you start and make the affirmative case for what was done. Yeah, I I think that the rates uh, that have risen uh, in the past few years have really reflected an exodus of younger and healthier people uh, from the market. And uh, when the individual mandates penalties were at the highest in 2016, that is actually when enrollment started to decline. Now, my view on this is uh, uh, pretty simple. I think the individual mandate itself was never a really serious driver uh, of expanded health insurance coverage. Rather, it was the provision of the subsidies for the coverage uh, that drove enrollment, uh, accounting for now almost nine out of ten enrollees in the Obamacare health insurance exchanges. It was never the threat of a, I I think, laughably weak tax penalty Mm -hmm. uh, that neither political party would ever really seriously enforce. And when the penalty was imposed, as CBO reported repeatedly, it was imposed mostly on lower middle income and lower income working families and individuals. So, you know, frankly, I think President Obama was absolutely right when he campaigned against Hillary Clinton and opposed the individual mandate, right. saying that it was both unfair and unenforceable. That was, well, the Republicans actually take Obama's advice seriously. That was his original position until yes, he turned around and imposed it. So are you saying that you think... Um, that because the tax penalty was weak, it was really not very influential, the individual mandate, in getting a lot of new people into the health insurance market uh, on the Affordable Care Act exchanges, and therefore the repeal of it is something that Trump can wear as a repeal Obamacare, hated individual mandate, badge of honor, but it didn't really drive that many people out of the market? 
I don't think the individual mandate, right, I don't think it was really consequential. And I think if it was consequential, when the mandate penalties became stronger, how do you explain the decline in enrollment in 2016? In 2016, you started to see a very significant decline in enrollment at the time that the penalty was was at its highest. So I I just don't think that it was uh, it was a realistic uh, it was a realistic uh, uh, it was it was really Uh not something was going to work. Heather Howard, do you have a different take on this? I do. I think the individual mandate was an important part of the ACA as originally enacted, and President Obama obviously came around to that perspective because. It's important to bring young and healthy people into the insurance market because health insurance, like all insurance, is about spreading risk broadly. So you want to have the broadest group of people buying health insurance. And you know we don't know what impact the repeal will have. We're going to obviously have uh, experience next year. We'll be able to look back and see. But the Congressional Budget Office did estimate that they thought it would both reduce the add to the number of people who are uninsured and increase prices for the people who are still buying health insurance. And we do already have some perspective on this. We've seen uh, New Jersey and the District of Columbia have stepped in and said, we're going to adopt a, a, a state-level individual mandate. And in New Jersey, at least, insurance companies responded by saying, we're going to lower rates this year um, by over 9% because it helped give it helped uh, reassure the, the market that there were going to be that broad cross-section of people buying health insurance. Now, explain that, because I mentioned it uh, before that I had seen an article indicating what you just said. Uh, when we were taking calls, and it doesn't make intuitive sense to a lot of people. uh, But, Heather, do you think the prices for the premiums on Obamacare exchange policies are actually going to stabilize this year or even go down a little bit, as you just said, despite the fact that the individual mandate is gone and despite the fact Uh, that the Trump administration also suspended the so-called risk adjustment payments to insurance companies that had too many elderly or unhealthy enrollees? Well, let's step back. I think under the Trump administration, we've had almost two years of uncertainty and disruption, which has increased costs for consumers. And we saw uh, premiums go up significantly this year. The market appears to have stabilized. And so across the country, we're seeing small increases and even decreases in some areas in spite of that um, uncertainty. And some might even call it sabotage, uh, which maybe we'll get a chance to talk about. But there's been so much uncertainty from the Trump administration in terms of how the ACA is implemented that this year we saw significant increases. Consumers will certainly remember that. And the repeal of the individual mandate was just one more example of that disruption and uncertainty. And so, so far this year, we've seen stabilization. But I really credit that to the resiliency of the ACA that now eight and a half years in, we're seeing things stabilize even in the face of efforts to sabotage it. Why? Well, I think it's really the design of the ACA. You've combined subsidies to help people afford health insurance. We had an individual mandate, and there are some people who think that even though it's repealed now, it, it's been socialized enough into people for people that they will they will buy. And there's really just overwhelming demand across the country for people who want health insurance. And now the health insurance that's being sold is comprehensive, meets people's needs. There, there was a lot of take up. Uh, you know, we have now eight and a half years into the life of the ACA. More than 20 million people have bought health insurance, and we have seen a, a small drop in, in, in people buying health insurance over the last two years, but it's still healthy demand. Any disagreement, Robert Moffat, on yes. the, the um, stabilization yeah, I, of the market or why? Well, first of all, I think the market is stabilizing because it's less and less of a market. You can't call the exchanges anything uh, that looks like a robust insurance market. Really, it's what's happening is the exchanges are settling into a uh, very heavily subsidized federal risk pools is what they are. Um, they are disproportionately uh, enrolling older and sicker people. And, of course, the premiums uh, are covered. As I say, nine out of ten of the folks in these uh, exchanges are being subsidized by the taxpayers. But so, let, let me jump in for a second. Isn't that what the proponents of Obamacare would say is exactly what it was designed to do, and therefore it's working? So if the subsidies are there and making it possible for people who are older and sicker to buy insurance, sure, 
um, and the number of people enrolled are, is going up and the actual price of premiums is not going up, then that is the idea of the ACA, right? Well, yeah, no, they didn't. Uh, they, in fact, their view of how the exchanges would develop was actually quite different from what has actually happened. Um, they expected, uh, and we know this because they publicly stated it, in 2014, the Obama administration officials expected that about 40% of the people between the ages of 18 and 34 would enroll in the health insurance exchanges. The reality is, in 2014, only 28% did. And by 2016, 40% of those who were eligible for the ACA enrollment were between the ages of 18 and 35, but only 26% of those enrollees were younger. So the truth is, is that, uh, you know, young people, uh, young and healthy individuals have been avoiding enrollment in the exchanges uh, in droves since the inception of the program. And I would remind you that this is 2018. Uh, the enrollment now in the exchanges is about 10.6 million people. When this law was enacted in 2010, it's seared on my memory, I was very much involved in the debate, um, the CBO was saying that we would have 24 million people enrolled in the exchanges. Uh, that's quite a very, that is a huge difference in terms of what actually so has happened. Let me go on to another thing that Trump has done and get your takes on it. Um, Heather, Trump also extended so-called short-term policies, allowable length, to three years. And I think they, they touted that as a big thing. This is going to sound wonky to a lot of listeners <laughs> and kind of risk going over their heads, uh, but I know a lot of people more in the liberal camp were very alarmed about that and thought that would also um, drain people from the Affordable Care Act in a way that would hurt the overall health insurance uh, market and affordability. So how, how would you explain extending short-term policies allowable length to three years and why it matters? Um, well, so these are plans that were that have that were intended to be sort of gap fillers. Maybe when you were moving from one job to another and you needed coverage for a short period of time, um, and they were never as comprehensive in terms of what they covered, and um, and also you could be charged more, or denied coverage if you had pre-existing conditions. But they served a sort of a purpose in in that gap filling role, but now they'd be expanded to be to be allowable for 364 days, basically a year, even though they're still called short term plans, and then they can be extended for several more years after that. And the result is that they sort of they end up luring younger and healthier people into these plans because they're they're cheaper. Guess why? Because they're not covering a lot of conditions. The majority of short term plans don't cover things like hospitalization and maternity care. So younger people opt for these plans because superficially they're attractive, but then they don't end up meeting their needs and protecting them. And then when it ends up happening to the remaining people, to older and sicker people, is they're remaining in the, in the Obamacare compliant plans, and those plans get even more and more expensive. So, you know, if we're lamenting the fact that not enough people have signed up, and I would agree we want more people to sign up, this is counter to that goal because it's going to mean it's harder for people who need health insurance to get the coverage they need. Mm -hmm. And they're, and and I think I like to think of them as um, Swiss cheese plans because they have a lot of holes. And the problem is they're marketed in a way that don't um, that don't really tell people what they're buying and. Insurance departments in the past used to get a lot of consumer complaints about these plans, and that's why the ACA really limited their applicability. And the Trump administration now is expanding them, and, and I really fear a year from now that we're going to be hearing from a lot of unhappy consumers, and it will have a, 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 a detrimental well, impact on the people who are still left in the market. When we had our call-in lead-up to this conversation, uh, one of the callers said the prices for his individual um, – plans were were going up so high that he might resort to one of these and go to what he called catastrophic care. And people who like the fact that that option exists again now say, well, why shouldn't an individual or a family have the option to um, use insurance the way we maybe think of other kinds of insurance or homeowner's insurance or something like that? You're paying for your normal um, homeowner's expenses, unless something 
really dramatic and expensive happens, like a flood or a fire. So why not with health insurance? You'll, you'll pay out of your pocket for your routine expenses or your smaller illnesses. And these catastrophic plans, um, you know, only cover things if they're really ex- expensive and catastrophic that happen to you. And why shouldn't consumers have that choice? Well, I think for several reasons. One, we've tried that in the past, and it didn't work. At the time of the ACA, we had 50 million uninsured people, and we had a system that was fundamentally unfair. People who had pre-existing conditions couldn't buy health insurance or were charged uh, exorbitant prices for coverage. The current plan gets everybody in the system, which makes it fairer and spreads the cost. And I think also we know from research that consumers cannot predict what their health care expenses are going to be. You don't know if you're going to have an accident. You know, you don't know if you're going to get sick. And um, those catastrophic plans don't protect people from medical debt, from significant medical debt. We know that medical debt is one of the number one um, causes of of bankrupt of personal bankruptcy. So they're they're not really providing protection. Protection, and people aren't buying them knowing what they're getting and mm. and they're not getting and they're also not making people healthier because they're not people tend not to know how to use them right. and tend not to access their benefits. Robert, a quick defense of Trump well, putting these plans is, back. What you've heard is kind of a standard progressive line, which is we know what is best for people rather than what they think is best for themselves. Uh, For the short-term plans, I mean, what Trump is simply doing is restoring the previous rule. Uh, This rule existed. He's asking, uh, you know, he asked uh, for commentary on whether the short-term plans would be uh, renewed. And, of course, people said that people who wrote in to the administration said they would. Uh, Understand this. The short-term plans are not – they're – based on entirely different statutory provisions outside of the of the ACA. They're based on existing federal law. Mm-hmm. The Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act. Um, the ACA didn't <clears throat> did not uh, amend that. But what they do is they they exist, they they would be primarily regulated by the way, governed by state regulation under the Health Insurance Portability and Accountability Act, which means if you're in a state like for example New York or California, uh, blue states, you can they they can add the protections that they want. They do provide a perfectly legal off ramp for millions of Americans who do not want or do not like or who simply cannot afford uh, the Affordable Care Act. They're necessary, I think, for middle class Americans who can't afford the the skyrocketing premiums that have hit them since 2013, when the medium premium increases were jumping at 50 percent as well as these crazy deductibles running over $8,000 a year now for middle-class families. Very briefly on the concern that Heather raised about the marketing of these plans, that a lot of consumers are going to look up when they get some kind of health problem and realize that they're not covered for very much because these so-called catastrophic plans aren't marketed very honestly. Do you share that concern? Well, no. First of all, I think there's a variety of them. Uh, they're not all the same, and they're all governed by state le- uh, s- uh, state regulation. So the states can add what they want in most cases. Uh, these these plans do have catastrophic protection. Many of them have very broad networks, and of course, they're far more affordable in terms of premiums and deductible uh, payments than the Obamacare plans. And unlike Obamacare, no one was ever forced to buy them or threatened with penalties or fines if they don't. They are not in any sense, and I I would concede this, they're not in any sense a long-term fix uh, to the Affordable Care Act or the the dysfunctions of the insurance market. They're a form of direct short-term relief mm-hmm. available to Americans who want it. Right. Well, that's and the, it's a question of whether they want it or not. Nobody's that's that's, that's to the do it. concern, though, I think that people have, that um, as short-term gap fillers, um, if they only were able to last a few months or whatever it was, then they really serve that function. When you can market them, as Trump now allows, for three years, then people think, oh, this is my health insurance. Three years, this is, this is what I'm going to live on. Well, the fact and Brian, is, is and nobody's required to buy them. Yeah. Uh, Heather, very briefly. Yeah, Brian, I would just jump in and say that uh, nobody's required to buy them. But if it, if the end result is that people with pre-existing conditions um, have fewer options, I think Americans don't want to go there. I think, the, you know, people look back nine years ago um, when you could be denied coverage or charged more because of pre-existing condition. And this is helping 
roll things back to that world that I think people don't want to return to. We're going to continue in a minute and turn to the question of rising prescription drug prices and what Trump and the current Congress are doing about that and whether that should be seen as effective. Stay with us. Brian Lehrer on WNYC in our 30 Issues in 30 Days election series. Today asking, have Trump and the Republican Congress made health care any more or less affordable or any more or less good? With Heather Howard, a health policy expert and former associate director of the Domestic Policy Council during the Clinton administration. And also joining us now, Ed Hazelmeyer, expert in healthcare policy at the conservative think tank, the Heritage Foundation, Heiselmeyer, forgive me, at the Heritage Foundation. We've been talking to his colleague, Rob, Robert uh, Moffitt, on some of these other aspects. And Mr. Heiselmeyer is, a, uh, is more focused on the question of prescription drugs. So thank you very much for joining us as well. Welcome to WNYC. Well, thanks for having me. And I'll give you the first word in this section. Um, <laughs> Trump has introduced what he calls the American Patients First Plan to fight rising prescription drug costs. Now, he had a caller in the call-in segment leading up to this conversation who is on Medicare and is very ha unhappy about the cost of a particular medication that he's on long-term going way up uh, in the last year or so. And he says, this isn't going to get better until they allow Medicare to negotiate with the drug companies, which Medicare is now prohibited uh, to do with respect to price. So why don't you tell us what Trump and or this Congress have done and what you think about it? Well, this is in process right now. The Trump administration put forward a blueprint of things that they're considering. And I don't know if he's on. In the, uh, Hello? Uh, sorry, I apologize to our listeners. I think we had a little cross lines here. I think Robert Moffat can't hear his colleague, Ed Heiselmeyer. Ed, are you still there? Yes, I'm still there. Go Thank ahead. You. you can pick yeah, up right yeah. where you left off. The, the, the Trump administration's blueprint is talking about things that the administration uh, can possibly do within existing, uh, existing law by changing regulation. Obviously, there's a role for Congress if you want to go further in changing uh, the law. Um, I think what's useful about this is they're taking a fairly systematic approach to it. Uh, the problem you have here is people tend to gravitate towards a simplistic solution that actually maybe causes more problems than it solves, such as Medicare negotiating. Uh, that's a very popular one, but you have to ask the question, well, what does that mean? And if it means that the government would say to the drug company, well, give us a better price or the patients don't get your drug, uh, well, that would be effective in terms of bringing down the price, maybe, but it would be at the possible risk of patients not getting the care that they need or they want. So that's not in necessarily going to uh, work. In so other words, in other words, you think that uh, uh, pharmaceutical companies would actually remove a lot of medications from the marketplace rather than no, sell the, the at danger the. The danger, the danger is less that the, the pharmaceutical company removes it. The danger is that the government simply says, well, we're not going to pay for it. Uh, and that's happened in other countries. And, and so uh, the mm -hmm. Congressional Budget Office says, you know, price negotiation, unless you hold that over the heads, take, you have to do two things, one of two things. You either have to, to, to make price negotiation save money. That's what the Congressional Budget Office says. You either have to be willing for the government to say, Granny doesn't get the drug if you don't play ball, or you have to say, if you don't play ball, mm -hmm. we take away your intellectual property. Mm -hmm. And so, you know, those are pretty drastic. I think what the administration has done that's useful here is they segmented out some of the things that all get balled up. For example, there's a difference between a high price for the drug and a high out-of-pocket cost for the consumer. The drug price could stay the same, but the out-of-pocket costs could go up for consumers. And we've seen that. And that's, So these are two different issues. And I think it's very useful to think about those as different issues because they involve different remedies. 
Which is to say that puts the onus on the insurance companies for not covering the price of the drug well, in, in as well? In some cases, yes. In some cases, it does. I mean, I, you know, one of the things that I raised is there's a tier in formularies called specialty drugs. And uh, this is done in, in both the public programs like Medicare or the public, private, you know, private programs like my employer-provided insurance. Uh, well, what is a specialty drug? And why do I pay a higher copay? Well, mm-hmm. it's an expensive drug. Well, we need to start mm-hmm. thinking about drugs the way we think about other things. They don't say mm-hmm. to you in your health plan, well, a heart bypass is a specialty operation, so you pay a higher copay for right. that than you pay for an appendectomy. He- Heather Howard, what's your take on this? So I I couldn't hear what he was saying, but I'll just jump in oh, generally on what so on what on what the Trump administration has released. As you noted, they released a blueprint earlier this summer, and I, I think it was an important first step. And and it's we've got to be having this conversation. But the proposals that um, the president uh, announced are pretty modest, and we certainly haven't seen the dramatic price cuts that President Trump promised. I think it's good that we're thinking about things like how do we reduce the the cut that middlemen the pharmaceutical benefit PBMs are getting. Uh, we need to find more ways to protect people on Medicare Part D and help them. Um, and we need to expand the availab- availability of biosimilars. But I do fear that we're just nibbling around the edges here, um, that we're not really doing anything fundamental like allowing Medicare to negotiate. One state, actually, Massachusetts, proposed and asked the federal government for permission to negotiate like Medicare would, and, and the Trump administration denied them that flexibility. So I think we really are just um, sort of just getting into the the shallow end of the pool mm-hmm. at this point. Part of what you couldn't hear the other guests say uh, was that other um, forces are to blame. It's not necessarily that the cost of the drug goes so much higher in and of itself. Part of it is that when the cost of the drug goes higher, the insurance companies um, don't cover it or they're generally not covering many prescription drugs as well as they did before, even if their prices are not rising. And that's where some of the outrage should be focused, such as in the category that he called specialty drugs. He -hmm. said, if you need a medication for your particular illness, that's a drug. Why call something for heart disease a specialty drug and something for cancer not a specialty drug, um, you know, and let the health insurance companies get away with charging higher copays for those. Is that how much of that is, is an issue uh, as far as you're concerned? I think that's a fair criticism. I mean, what it what it really um, surfaces, though, is the inherent trade-offs here is everybody wants access to the drugs that they are prescribed or that they that they want to take at an affordable cost. And one of the tools insurance companies have is to do things like to tier drugs. Right. And I think that, you know, and, and to say you have to try these drugs first before you get to this drug. And in doing so, they're able to negotiate mm-hmm. better prices. And, and and as a consumer, of course, that's you know, that's not what consumers like is being told no. And and if Medicare were able to negotiate drug prices, a lot of people think that's the panacea, but we should acknowledge that that might mean not all drugs were covered immediately. You might have to start, you know, you might have to do step therapy, which means starting with one drug and if that fails, moving to another drug. So those are inherent trade-offs. If you want access to everything, that's going to cost us. Right. Let um, me jump in on that because that was another thing that Ed Heiselmeyer said. I know you couldn't hear it that if we have Medicare able to negotiate prices, it means that Medicare says to the pharmaceutical companies, either you give our uh, Medicare enrollees no more than this cost for this medication or we're not buying. And in some cases in other countries, that has resulted in their equivalents of Medicare saying, sorry, the price is too high, we're not buying. But what's the end result of that? The, The sick people don't get the drugs. I think that's right. I mean, it, they can drive a better bargain if they can say, we'll cover this cholesterol drug and not this cholesterol drug. And you need then to build in safeguards to ensure that if the if one cholesterol drug is not working for a patient, patient they can shift to another one, right? I mean, it's, you know, if you're going to do that kind of, of um, you know, targeting, then you've got to make sure consumers are protected. And that's the devil's in the details there. Um, we're almost out of time. We've got about three minutes left, and we're going to do a separate segment in this 30 issues in 30 days fall election series on what the Democrats are proposing with respect to health care costs. This has been to assess what Trump and the Republican Congress during these uh, last almost two years 
have done so far and the impact of those things. And let me go back to Robert Moffat from the Heritage Foundation and ask you just very briefly, is there anything we haven't brought up that you think is really significant that well, they have done, for better or worse? Yeah, I think the most important thing that's happened recently is this whole approach of um, the waivers uh, that Trump has delivered. I mean, the question is, do we want stable health insurance markets? And the answer is yes. Uh, we have to stabilize the health insurance markets. And uh, and as I said, in some cases, there are no markets. And, uh, you know, right now, in 52% of the counties of, of the United States, there is only one insurer. Uh, now, those markets are actually quite stable. There's no competition. There's no choice. There's no disruptive private sector innovation. Uh, so if you want to call them markets, but as I said earlier, I think they're basically, uh, you know, uh, highly, highly subsidized. So, so uh, when you say pools. waiver, you mean giving the states? Yeah, waivers. Yeah, waivers the, at the state level. We have the, we have the ability right now, the, the, the ability to grant a waiver under current law to the states to allow them uh, to make changes in their health insurance markets. And I think one of the most important things that's happened is that the states have been given waivers, uh, Alaska, for example, uh, Maryland, uh, Minnesota, Oregon, a number of these states have been given waivers uh, to um, to uh, to basically rearrange or reorganize their markets, okay. including the creation of reinsurance programs. And, 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 and Heather Howard, I'm going to give you the last 45 okay. seconds <laughs> or so here. Anything else that you would add that we haven't brought up, for better or worse, that's significant on health care costs from Trump and this Congress? Well, I'll agree with Dr. Moffitt that uh, we're seeing states leaning in and saying we're going to stabilize our markets in the face of the sabotage uh, from the federal government. So I think that's one thing to watch. The second thing that I would note is that we've talked about Medicare generally, but we haven't talked about how Medicare and Medicaid those programs are, are at risk in the long term because of the deficits caused by the tax cuts last year. And I think that's an important thing for to keep in mind. These are programs that are really valued by uh, by beneficiaries and their long-term viability, I think, is at risk because of those deficits. And those deficits will be used to, um, I think, to cut those programs in Heather, the future. Heather Howard, Robert Moffat, Ed Heiselmeyer, thank you all very much for engaging in this conversation of the effect on affordable health care by the Trump administration and the current Congress. We really appreciate it. Brian Lehrer on WNYC. Our 30 Issues in 30 Days series continues tomorrow, along with lots of other stuff. Thanks for listening today. Thanks for listening to Politics Brief. If you want more, go to wnyc.org slash election.